Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello there, and welcome to Sibylline's podcast series. Jonathan Dunbar here, Sibylline's EMEA director. And today I'm joined by Phil Riding, our lead Middle East and Africa analyst, and Eloise Scott, our Middle East and North Africa analyst, to discuss a couple of regional developments. The first topic of discussion centers on the upcoming Israeli elections due to be held on the 23rd of March, while the second area of focus is on Libya's new interim government and the challenges it is likely to face going forward. So, Phil, Eloise, thank you for joining me on the podcast. And to our first point, why is Israel having another election? Yes, thank you, JD. Well, it feels like it's been a long journey. But as you said, obviously, the Israelis will be heading to the polls on the 23rd of March for a staggering fourth time in two years. And this this fourth vote comes after three rounds of inconclusive ballots with the long-serving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu essentially struggling increasingly to hold on to, to his grip on power. And obviously in the most recent election, Netanyahu managed to convince his rival, Benny Gantz, who was the leader of the Blue and White Political Alliance, to join him in an emergency coalition government. However, this obviously looked kind of doomed from the start. Gantz had, had pretty much run for, for prime minister in the last couple of years with the sole focus of essentially forcing Netanyahu out of office. So I think he lost a fair bit of credibility in agreeing to, to form a government with his main rival, particularly as he said that that was something that he wouldn't be looking to do. And then within that emergency coalition agreement that was signed April last year, the leadership of the country was supposed to rotate from Netanyahu to Gantz, with Gantz taking over office in October this year. It seemed fairly clear from the outset that, that essentially Netanyahu saw this, this agreement as a way to buy time and clearly never intended to actually hand power over to his coalition partner, as we knew really that, that this would have allowed Gantz potentially to pass legislation to essentially bar Netanyahu from running from office again, um, given his indictment over, over corruption charges. So clearly Netanyahu was never going to let that happen. And his desire to disrupt the arrangement then I think became crystal clear when it came to trying to pass the state budget as part of the coalition deal. And obviously it was ultimately the failure to pass a budget by December last year that essentially triggered the collapse of the government after just seven months. And, and as we're seeing now, Netanyahu is looking to, to possibly reassert his grip on power, which, which seems a potential, a potential scenario given the increasingly divided opposition. Thank you for that, Eloise. So I think the big question here is, you know, on the, on the back of Israel's other recent elections, is there likely to be a decisive outcome this time around? Uh, yeah, I think I'll, I'll take that one, JD. And the short answer is no. So as Eloise described over the last, was well, sort of the last three rounds of, of um, general elections, Benny Gantz was the leader of the anti-Netanyahu bloc. But now that his credibility is, is shot by having eventually ended up in government with Netanyahu, that baton has been taken up by really a couple of other challenges. One being the long-standing centrist, uh, Yair Lapid, who um, is the head of the Yeshiti sort of uh, liberal centrist party. Uh, and the other is uh, Gideon Saar, who unsuccessfully ran against Netanyahu for the leadership of Likud a couple of times over the last two years in the hope that Likud supporters would 
see that the corruption charges against Netanyahu discredited him, but obviously they, they didn't share Tsar's concerns in, in, in that respect. So Tsar, in order to, to sort of launch his own political career against Netanyahu, has had to break away and form his own party, which is called New Hope. And both of these groups, Yeshatid and New Hope, are, are polling well going into next week's um, elections, but both are well behind Likud. So uh, in order to form a majority in the, in the Knesset, um, coalition needs 60 seats or 61 for a majority and Likud is still polling at 30 which is you know a good turnaround for for Netanyahu given where his popularity was at in the middle of last year um, over his perceived mishandling of the pandemic but as I'm sure listeners will be aware the very successful vaccination drive that um, Israel embarks upon over the course of the last couple of months has transformed Netanyahu's popularity and he now looks like a, a safe bet to be a part of, along with Likud, a part of whatever government emerges from this upcoming vote, because there's simply no alternatives that that, that are feasible that, that don't involve him. So, you know, Yelopi being a liberal centrist won't sit with the orthodox religious parties, which pretty much makes it impossible for him to sit at the head of a, an anti-Netanyahu coalition. The Labour Party and, and Moretz, the two sort of liberal centrist parties of, of yesteryear, are still pulling really poorly with sort of between four and six seats respectively. So again, they're unlikely to, to form you know, meaningful partners for um, Yeshatid. Also on the right, you've got uh, groups like uh, Yamina, which is led by uh, Naftali Bennett, the former defence minister. And likewise, although they're polling okay, that they're unlikely to win enough seats that Gideon Saar could partner with them and uh, you know, shut Netanyahu out of office. So really the, the most likely scenario I think that we're looking at is it's a case of Likud will be part of the new government, but it's a question of whether if he partners with both New Hope and Yeshatid, given that those two parties are effectively running on an anti-Netanyahu platform, can they retain their credibility whilst going into government with him? And what the what would be the price of that? You know, will Netanyahu accept that if he's granted parliamentary immunity from his current corruption charges, for example, that that would be sufficient to persuade him not to continue as prime minister. And so the, the partnership would effectively be between Likud as a party rather than with Netanyahu as an individual. And, and that might be something that is more politically acceptable to either um, Yelapid or, or Gideon Tsar. So I, I think it's that kind of horse trading is what's going to do- dominate the the aftermath of, of next week's poll and the future of Benjamin Netanyahu will be sort of central to that, really. You know, this leads on to my next question. Amid all this political wrangling, you know, Israelis going back to the polls for the fourth time in in recent years, beyond the political realm, how does this impact the business environment in Israel? Is it a positive that they're moving forward with another election and, you know, there might be some certainty at the end of this, there might not be. But how is this playing into the confidence to actually function as a business amid all this? I, th- I think the big question is really whether or not there's an outcome in a relatively constrained timescale so that Israel can actually pass a budget, which it's not done since 2019. So for, since 2019, when this string of elections started, the, the country is basically just sort of patched up several months at a time by passing a succession of um, sort of interim financial packages. But obviously, now that the vaccination programme is nearly complete, really the country needs to move ahead with a new deal or a new financial arrangement which can see it bounce back from the impact of COVID. And so I think really for business, the key issue is 
will there be a government formed within the next couple of months that will be in a position to pass not just the budget for this year, but a budget that encompasses those kind of recovery measures and stimulus packages that we've seen, say, in, in the US with the 1.9 trillion you know, package that's, that's just gone through there. So uh, for business, I'd say that's that's where the most immediate impact is. And obviously for those firms that have contracts with the Israeli government that have, have had a certain degree of, of uncertainty over the course of the last year or so, given that you know, um, payments to, to contractors or whatever else have been contingent on this series of, of incomplete measures rather than a full budget, you know, that's obviously been somewhat disconcerting. So if, and it is a big if, uh, there's a, a functional government that emerges out of these polls that can pass a budget and pass a meaningful stimulus package, then that will compound the, the sort of good news of the vaccination programme and put Israel on a, a solid footing for the year ahead. So, so there is a potential for, for good news in the next couple of months. Thank you for that, Phil. Let's now move across further west along the Mediterranean to North Africa and Libya more specifically. So the country's been engulfed in conflict for, for 10 years now. And, you know, recent developments are very positive. It has an interim government. How did it get to this point? You know, without going into a sort of potted history of, of the last decade, it's just, it's easy to say that really the... The current circumstances are, uh, have been brought about in large part by the failure of Khalifa Haftar's um, assault on Tripoli in between 2019 and 2020. So uh, as I'm sure many listeners will be aware, Haftar, the general at the head of the Libyan National Army, which has been uh, effectively fighting the UN-backed government, the Government of National Accord, um, based in Tripoli over the last couple of years, Haftar went on a quite a successful campaign in 2019, which saw him retake much of the country. Um, and it culminated from around April 2019 in a, an assault on the capital itself. However, that just sort of got bogged down quite quickly, dragged on for about a year before a Turkish intervention on behalf of, of the GNA pushed Haftar back last spring. And that brought about a current stalemate between effectively between the Turkish-backed GNA and Khalifa Haftar and his foreign backers, which Russia and, and others. And the, the front lines have largely been unchanged since that point. But I think that brought about a situation where the foreign backers of both sides were now resigned to the fact that there had to be a mediated solution, given that Haftar came the closest to kind of you know, retaking or reunifying the country by force uh, of anyone over the course of the last decade. So the culmination of, of UN talks that went on throughout the autumn was an agreement just before Christmas that um, was set a target date for the 24th of December this year to hold elections, which would be the first in, in a decade to be held nationwide. So while this process has been successful, obviously it's not without obstacles going forward, although the, the first of those has effectively been hurdled by the uh, both sides being able to agree on a candidate for prime minister, namely uh, Abdul Hamid Dubaiba, who was nominated this year. And as you mentioned, JD managed successfully and, and nominate a cabinet, which was um, accepted this but obviously um, it's still early days for, for that provisional government looking ahead to the elections in December. So we've got this interim government in place now. It's got a lot of work to do. What are some of the obstacles, the challenges it's likely to face as we move forward into the next uh, quarters and, and towards the elections in December? Yeah, sadly, it seems a bit sort of like, where do you start when talking about the obstacles? 
immediately, I think the interim government needs to kind of quickly assert itself and begin delivering on services that have obviously been severely disrupted by years of fighting. And I think this will help the government to gain the support of the public and sort of prove its legitimacy in a way. I think it's particularly important that, that the wider public buy into the political process, obviously, um, brokered by the UN. But obviously, given a decade of unrest and conflict, there have also been several years of, of institutions that have, that have been set up essentially to compete against each other. Bringing about some form of, of coherent and effective government is, is clearly going to be incredibly challenging. And then on top of that, as a sort of base, you've got numerous factors at stake. So even though, as you sort of alluded to, Phil, the foreign actors like Russia and Turkey that were very influential on both sides, in um, particularly for Turkey, in, in achieving sort of a military victory, if you will, even though it is obviously stagnant at the moment, these actors appear to have sort of taken a bit of a, a sort of step back during the, the UN talks. But that said, the government will most likely have to grapple with these competing influences, not just in the coming months, but also in the longer term if a new government does indeed come to power next year. And then alongside that, you've also got around 20,000 uh, foreign personnel, essentially from foreign mercenaries still in the country. This could have a really destabilizing effect, particularly if some of these groups or, or certain cells engage in clashes, or if they were to just seek spoils of war that they maybe hope to, to be able to access or exploit. And then I think just in the, in the interest of time, obviously, because you could, I think, go on for a while talking about the obstacles that, that Libya's political process faces at the moment. But I think it is worth noting as well, just aside from these sort of semi-state and non-state actors, there are also state actors and officials who have been slightly sidelined by the UN process, but who will almost certainly return with gusto and will almost certainly try to sort of retain their power networks beyond the coming year. And obviously breaking down these kinds of networks and relationships will be, will be really challenging given that sort of patronage and corruption networks in not only state institutions, but companies and sectors across the country is so entrenched. I think it will be, be really challenging, I think, to, to bring about a lasting political solution. But as you said, obviously in the beginning, JD, this is a notable development and it is a positive one for now. So a case of essentially hoping for the best and planning for the worst in that sense. I think so. I think it's it's early days and I think there's a degree of buy-in, I think, from the public, but also the um, sort of the, the political officials that have been involved in, in the dialogue forum with the UN. So there are good signs, but obviously there are, there are real concerns underlying the process. No, thank you for that, Eloise. So in terms of, you know, the economic outlook and the mainstay of Libya's economy, its oil industry and to a lesser extent its gas gas exports too how what's the outlook for that you know how how is that going to weather the uh, current political situation well i think as i sort of alluded to there are obviously some positive takeaways certainly in the sort of short and medium term the restoration of an oil and gas ministry is really notable obviously the fact that it's a united government for the first time in several years hopefully means that um, provided that the process obviously remains intact that that actually it will help to end the divisions between the rival administrations and, and hopefully bring about a, a greater degree of stability and certainty for stakeholders. Obviously having competing institutions, particularly over, over things like oil resources and, and oil infrastructure was, was really devastating for the sector um, as, as on top of years of, of conflict. So I, I do think this is a positive 
for um, the oil industry in the coming months, certainly. But obviously, in the longer term, the key will be keeping conflict levels to a minimum. Um, and this is in particular, in particular, particularly important for the consideration of militias and other actors who have in recent years been a really disrupting force for production and exports. And obviously, oil infrastructure has been leveraged and exploited for political gain in recent years. And that is quite concerning. But I think the trajectory of political developments and conflict levels provide useful indicators. So obviously, it remains to be seen whether those remain positive. But I think as long as conflict levels remain at a minimum, there's a strong possibility that, that the governments and associated forces will be able to rein in militia activity and hopefully provide a, or sort of mitigate the risk of, of conflict over this crucial infrastructure. Thank you, Phil Eloise, for a most interesting discussion on these uh, topics. And now we'll be moving to Edward Johnson, our Inside Team Manager, for a look forward over the next seven days. Edward, thank you for joining me. What's on your horizon? Thanks, Jonathan. Well, yes, uh, as previously discussed uh, in, the, in the first part of the podcast, we've got Israel's election on the 23rd. Um, and no need for me to go into to, to too much detail here. I'm sure you've heard much about that. Moving forward and, and looking sort of more broadly um, across the globe, we've got a National Day protest in Bangladesh with the uh, marking the 50th anniversary of independence. You know, we're having leaders from Sri Lanka and India visiting the country with, with security to be elevated, particularly in Dhaka. Um, the police have already banned political organizations from rallying, um, and that's particularly aimed towards uh, Islamic parties that were uh, likely to be sort of antagonized by the presence of, of the Indian and Sri Lankan premiers in their country. So we see extra, extra security in place, road closures, causing those disruption to, to transport and logistics, and the police probably going to be quite purposeful in dispersing large groups of crowds should they gather. So certainly one to keep an eye on. Interesting. What about what about Europe? Anything to watch there? Well, tomorrow uh, on the 19th of March, uh, the Fridays for Future protests are set to take place in, in, a, in a range of, of major European cities. You know, these are uh, unlikely to be as, as, as disruptive as the XR events we've seen previously, given that it's the largely child, uh, older person-led event. And obviously with the, the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions, uh, these perhaps will be, uh, you know, crowd sizes will be further uh, diminished because of that. In France as well, over the weekend, we're likely to see protests against a uh, security law, uh, with Paris uh, expected to be the, the epicentre of those protests. Again, uh, with, with the COVID restrictions in place, um, you're likely to see police encouraging uh, any attendees to the event to, to disperse. Um, and obviously that increases you know, the, the scope for, for confrontation between those protesters and, and police. As, as far as the roundup goes, I think that's it for this week. Thank you for that, Edward. And to all of you who have joined us on the uh, podcast today, thank you for listening. And should you want to know any more, please do get in touch.